This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to another Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. If there's one symbol of this invisible virus, it's surely the face mask. Britain took to them later than most other European countries, but they're now compulsory in most indoor public spaces. Our masks don't yet seem to have become the cultural flashpoint, but they are in the US. But that doesn't make them a panacea. Talking to me today is Professor Graham Martin, Director of Research at the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute at Cambridge. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ros. Nice to talk to you. He specialises in the organisation and delivery of healthcare, which sounds a bit dry, but is pretty urgent right now, and is the co-author of several recent articles on face coverings and other issues around COVID. He's been arguing for a more nuanced, less polarised debate about COVID-19. Graham, back in the spring... There was a big push, especially from the left, for people to wear masks. It was it was similar to the calls for lockdown in March. It was an argument that the government wasn't doing something obvious that other countries had already done, which could slow the spread of COVID. But you argue that the evidence for masks wasn't necessarily clear cut. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, yes, this was back in the spring when lockdown was beginning and various measures were being mooted to reduce uh, coronavirus uh, transmission uh, and uh, various things were being introduced. Uh, Around that time, as you say, there was a lot of um, attention to the possibility of face masks, particularly as a means of source control. So that's to say as a way of stopping people who might be infected, uh, perhaps unknowingly, uh, from spreading the virus to others rather than a means of, of protecting yourself from others who might have the virus. We, that's to say my colleagues and I, had a look at the uh, evidence at that time. And uh, we were concerned about a few things, I suppose, partly about the, the science itself and partly about how that was being communicated. So first of all, at least at the time, and I think to some extent still now, the, the evidence was indeterminate. There has been more research since then. But in terms of really definitive evidence of the kind that shows clearly that, that, that face masks have um, an impact in reducing transmission, that wasn't really present then. Um, it's not completely present now. Of course, it's a very, very high standard of evidence, and it's a particularly difficult standard of evidence to achieve when there's a global pandemic. Um, but I, I, we felt that that um, uncertainty in the evidence base perhaps wasn't being communicated as, as well as it might be. Um, second, 
we were concerned that there wasn't really much consideration of the possible downsides of face masks, and particularly the downsides of, um, again, government measures to enforce the wearing of face masks. And thirdly, and I suppose connected to both of those points, um, we were concerned about the way that um, the message around face masks was, was being communicated by some parts of the scientific community. So there were very simplistic messages around how the science was actually much simpler than it seemed. It was, it was a no-brainer. It was something that we, we should definitely do, uh, either voluntarily or as a mandate. And we felt it was important to, well, to question that and to, to open that up to debate. And I think what we really wanted to do was not to set out um, an argument against face masks as such, and not even necessarily to set out an argument against their mandation, because these are political decisions, they're not decisions for scientists to make alone, but rather just to set out some of the, the downsides to open up the debate, and, uh, because debate itself is important, and you know, without a full uh, consideration of, of pros and cons and attempts to evaluate uh, the pros and cons of face masks or any other intervention and how they affect different groups, you really haven't got a sound basis for making those kinds of decisions. So tell us about some of the downsides that you identified. We identified five potential sets of downsides, and one of those was the was the ambiguities in the evidence base itself. Um, so the fact that there hadn't really been any trials of masks based on, on randomisation that, that clearly showed in aggregate that face masks would be an effective measure. I think secondly, there are issues around how face masks are handled and uh, treated and administered at the individual level and how well people wear them. There are potential arguments, albeit primarily from clinical settings, that you know, these things are really, really important um, because you know, the face masks themselves can become sources of contamination. Recent reanalysis has suggested that perhaps some of the problems that seem to be manifesting with the cloth masks as compared to medical masks there were, were because they were being hand-washed instead of laundered in um, hospital laundry. So there's that kind of evidence which is quite interesting, which sort of picks out some of the nuance at the level of individual behaviour around face masks. I think at the third level, there's questions perhaps about what the wearing of face masks does to other measures, how it interacts with other measures, whether it reinforces people's behaviour in terms of things like social distancing, uh, hand hygiene and so on. At a fourth level, there's the sort of the potential interactions with um, wider supply and demand, particularly early on in the pandemic, you know, there were very strong pressures on PPE. And then fifthly, and in some ways most importantly, but most speculatively, uh, I think our point was that there's an awful lot of unknown unknowns here, things that we haven't even contemplated, uh, impacts of a mask mandate in particular, you know, uh, obligatory uh, wearing of masks, impacts that they might have that, that are quite unpredictable because we live in a complex world and these can uh, affect behaviour in ways we don't even anticipate. And again, this isn't to, to say that therefore we shouldn't do face masks. It is to say that we should be very cautious before we use the full weight of government enforcement to make them happen, which, you know, is, is quite a radical measure in a lot of ways. And we should think these things through. We should theorise, we should hypothesise, and we should test those hypotheses empirically. I'm constantly surprised by how expensive they continue to be, face masks. I was almost expecting, once they were mandated, for they them to be made more freely available more cheaply. But... You know, we're told to avoid using disposable masks because they create waste. But reusable ones, you know, Superdrug, for instance, are between £4 and £10 each. And, it, and Tesco disposables are 10 for £5, which, given you're supposed to change them pretty regularly, is a lot of money if you're on a low income, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And these are often not one-off costs either because, you know, masks are missing, they deteriorate over time. There's all the challenges of laundering them effectively, uh, you know, making sure you do put them on a 40-degree washer, a boil washer, whatever's best, um, as we saw from that Vietnamese study. As as a one-off cost, it doesn't sound like that much. I'm sure it's possible if you really want to try to shop around and to get them cheaper. Um, But not everyone has time to do that. Uh, and particularly, you know, people on low incomes, people who frankly have got bigger things to worry about. It's an extra additional burden. And, you know, I think there's there's things here which are, are very easy to minimise. But, you know, the the burden of a, of a consistent laundry regime for a family of four, perhaps a single parent, uh, school children of different ages who have to have uh, masks, at least when they go on the bus, uh, doing all of that consistently, it just adds up very, very quickly in terms of the labour as well as the financial cost, as you've said. And some disabilities can affect people's ability to wear masks, to cope with masks, can't they? Yeah. And I mean, I think this is something that we covered briefly, again, in a, in a sort of a speculative way when we were writing the paper. Uh, but things which have become become a bit more apparent, um, even through casual observation and, and, and following uh, what people are saying in social media, you don't necessarily need um, an extensive empirical study to some of these things or to see some of these things, although that would be uh, beneficial. But most obviously, you know, for people who are hearing impaired, who relied on who rely on lip reading, a face mask is going to cause significant uh, troubles there. Autistic people with neurodiversity um, sometimes find eye contact challenging. Um, So if we're relying less on our mouths and on our um, facial expressions to convey um, what to communicate and to convey emotion and more on our our eyes, then that that can be challenging for that group. Another group which, you know, has been mentioned quite a lot, uh, and I'm sure this is serious for them, are people who have experienced trauma in the past, sexual assaults, for example, mask wearing uh, might be really quite onerous for them. So it, it's not hard for a lot of people. And, you know, this is often the argument that uh, it's really not a big burden. But for some people it is. If we are using, as I say, uh, the full weight of, of criminal law to enforce this, then we need to have um, a good reason to do that. These things have to be considered in that case, that the, the potential downsides have to be weighed up against the potential upsides, and that should be a process that's inclusive. Well, I started wearing a mask pretty early on because I figured, why not? Can't do me any harm, I might as well. I remember worrying that a society split down the middle over Brexit was now seizing on a new way to signal virtue Mm. and dissent. And I could see, as you mentioned, this happening on social media and people shaming people effectively. And I found myself on the tube and so on, giving people who weren't wearing them the kind of side eye in a disapproving way. And I have got myself doing that because I, I don't want to be that kind of person. But what um, do you worry too about the, the uh, this effect that it might have on people's ability mm. to, to relate to and tolerate each other, especially at a time when we are told to socially distance? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with that. I think the social dynamics are interesting. They're they're unfolding in in some ways that you might predict and some ways that are less expected. My colleague Esme Hanna, who was one of the uh, co-authors on on the piece we wrote, she's leading uh, a study looking at people's experiences of face masks since they became mandated in in many indoor settings. It's a qualitative study based on interviews and people are are relating those kinds of experiences. Plenty of people say, yeah, it's, it's not a big problem. I don't especially like it, but, you know, I get on with it because I think it's in the public interest. 
Um, but, you know, people, again, people who are autistic, uh, some people who have other communication difficulties, talk about these things, talk about a sense of stigmatization. I, I, I think, as you say, the, the social dynamics, is, do we really need more division right now? We're not in a situation, I don't think, like the United States, where masks, I think you were alluding to this, have become, you know, the latest symbol in terms of you know demonstrating your political affiliation which side you are on the on the cultural culture wars whether you're a liberal or conservative all of those kinds of things again we see those on social media uh, and interestingly you know some of the, the the big players in social media themselves have come down in that debate so i think there was a tweet from from twitter itself some time back saying that you can edit your will give you the ability to edit your tweets once everyone's wearing a mask so that's a pretty big statement of intent on the part of progressive america and you know that kind of um that kind of message um you can see why they might want to do it because again there is a sense that uh, at the aggregate level of the public interest if we want to contain this horrible virus then face masks not it might not be a, a bad thing to do um but it it, it creates rifts it sets a scene where people who are not wearing a mask for whatever reason, um, legitimate in inverted commas or illegitimate, are, you know, admonished for not wearing a mask. They get the side eye, they get a sense of stigmatization. Even worse in some situations, you do see reports in, in the media of, you know, these things resulting in violence. You have argued that the quality of COVID-19 debate has got worse, even among scientists who normally, naturally, there's debate, but that debate is not so much out in the open. Um, Yesterday, a group of US scientists called for young people to be able to resume their lives as normal, while the elderly and vulnerable shielded. And then another US scientist weighed in and said that was grotesque that it was basically herd immunity, a cruel form of herd, herd immunity that was singling out the sick and disabled. How do you feel when you see these kind of splits emerging? Yeah, I mean, so I have very mixed feelings about it in a lot of ways, because on the one hand, you know, I suppose what I've, I've tried to convey as we've been talking is that science is all about debate. Science is all about uh, disagreement and any sense that there is an easy answer or an absolute proven fact in science is, is in itself um, anti-scientific because science, you know, in a, from, from, from in a Popperian sense at least, is about falsification. It's about ideas, it's about developing evidence for those, and it's about comparing things and uh, improving the evidence base rather than a- arriving at a definitive answer. And most of the definitive answers that we see, that there, w- there will be another side to that coin. So I think, you know, in some ways being able to see science as a debate uh, and as a method that uh, it tries to create better quality evidence, um, but which creates evidence that is always challengeable, is a positive thing. On the other hand, you know, that kind of language, which is really quite inflammatory, is is not um, so productive. And I think what we're seeing is science in unusual circumstances. It's science that's being done at pace. It's science that's being done under the spotlight. And, you know, scientists aren't necessarily very well uh, trained in, in dealing with that kind of thing. I think scientific debate is, is, is a positive. Having um, public access to that scientific debate is a positive. But when scientific debate is reduced to ad hominem attacks on people, uh, rather than debate about the ideas or about the quality of the, uh, of the underpinning evidence, then that's problematic. Because there is no such thing as following the science. It doesn't make 
sense really to scientists when they hear that, is it? Because I mean, for a start, there are so many different kinds of science that tend on the pandemic, there are behavioral scientists will have a very different take from perhaps epidemiologists and those people within them will disagree. So this phrase is incredibly unhelpful. And yet the government uses it all the time, doesn't it? Uh, yes, and I suspect that's about um, blame transfer and uh, trying to suggest that these political decisions aren't as political as they seem. So as you say, there is no single science. Science is multidisciplinary. Different bodies of science will suggest different things. And synthesising those scientific me- uh, those scientific approaches into a single message is very, very difficult, and it will always be provisional. What we are seeing uh, in a lot of these debates is less about scientific disagreement as such, because I think there's been a lot of scientific progress over the last six months. We know much more about uh, COVID-19. We know much more about how to treat it. And we have a, a better idea about um, you know, things like transmission rates and the, and the impact of various measures on containing those. So we have more knowledge than we did. And I don't think that, um, with some exceptions, there's too much debate about that knowledge. But there's still a great deal of uncertainty particularly around what to do with that knowledge. And so I think, I mean, you were referring, I think, to the uh, the Great Barrington Declaration in terms of the scientists uh, in the United States and the UK and various other scientists around the world who have, you know, called for this approach to managing coronavirus, particularly in the absence of, of uh, a vaccine. What that is, is, is less about um, what the science is showing us and more about what to do given the knowledge that we have on the basis of science and the uncertainty that we still have and that which, you know, for the foreseeable future, science isn't going to uh, fill up. People are craving certainty about this pandemic, as we've seen. How can we make it easier for ourselves to live with that uncertainty? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's uncertain times. You know, the optimism of the summer is very quickly draining away. And, you know, certainly... Things like um, infection rates uh, are on the rise, and that does seem to be translating into symptomatic cases in some in some places. It seems to be translating into hospitalizations and perhaps even translating into deaths. So there's no doubt that these are unpleasant times. There's no doubt, in my mind at least, that a second wave uh, is is in train. That is, you know, we're likely to be living with this for some time. There's no certainty about. Um, whether a vaccination that's effective and safe will come along. There's no certainty about how effective that uh, vaccination will be in terms of providing uh, long-lasting immunity. So, you know, I hate to use the hackneyed phrase, the new normal, but that's kind of where we are at the moment. I think what we can console ourselves with is that we do have better knowledge of it, particularly around treatment, particularly around the organisation of healthcare systems um, in terms of dealing with the virus, so particularly in terms of reducing the likelihood of transmission within healthcare settings. And that's important not just in terms of treating uh, COVID-19 itself, but also in ensuring that we, we retain capacity within the healthcare system to deal with other things. And I think, you know, not becoming tunnel visions and focusing excessively on COVID-19 uh, is important because there are many other conditions, many of which are very harmful, which the healthcare system has been less able to deal with, particularly in the spring, because um, COVID-19 uh, has been so important. So I'm thinking, for example, here about around diagnostic waiting lists. I'm thinking about cancer treatment. All of these things, um, there are now much longer backlogs of people waiting to be seen. There's likely to be reduced capacity in the healthcare system for some time. 
So it's important both that we organise the healthcare system so that it is well placed to deal with COVID-19, but also so that it can get on with that routine business. And it's important, therefore, not to lose perspective, not to become focused on coronavirus alone. It's a very serious illness. It can be deadly. It can be very, very unpleasant for a lot of people who get it. Um, but there are other risks and we need to um, cater for those risks in the way we respond to coronavirus, in the way that we organise the healthcare system. We're doing that much better now. I think it's also helpful in a way to maintain that sense of perspective in our own minds and, re and remind ourselves that the world is a dangerous place. Uh, COVID-19 is horrible, but lots of other things are horrible. Um, and we have to uh, you know, live our lives in spite of that and do what we can uh, to manage those risks, but not um, risking our response to coronavirus, making those other things even worse. Graham, a lot of people listening will probably be thinking, what harm can masks do? Um, some may even th say it's unhelpful to raise difficulties and that will embolden people who reject face coverings just because they don't like being told what to do or they're sold on a conspiracy theory like QAnon and so on. What would you say to them? You're not saying don't wear masks, are you? No, no, I'm certainly not saying that. I mean, I think it's fair to say that for a lot of people, wearing a mask isn't that big an issue, probably for the vast majority of people. And that includes me. You know, I'm uh, tall, I'm white and male, I do wear a mask. But even if I didn't, I wouldn't expect to be on the end of a opprobrium for, for, for not doing so. Other people, uh, you know, who find it difficult to wear masks do face those kinds of difficulties. I think in terms of conspiracy theories, my, my, my argument here would be that it's not so much um, scientific debate that breeds conspiracy theories, but the sense that there is any effort to suppress debate. You know, science, as we've said, and the scientific method is about questions, not answers. It's about reducing uncertainty, uh, not by, uh, it's, it's not about providing solutions that are always perfect. I think most people get that, but I think retaining public trust means being honest about what science can and can't do. And that includes the uncertainties and, uh, and the downsides to inform the best choice uh, in situations which are which are less than optimal. So I think um, you know I certainly would say to to anyone if you if you can wear a mask, do um, not least because you are legally obliged to in, in in many settings. If you see someone who isn't wearing a mask, don't assume that they are doing it out of you know bloody mindedness or antagonism. Give them the benefit of the doubt and avoid the side eye. Graham, thanks so much for talking to us. We'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad-free and the night before general release, if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out the details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>